Hello from the Adorama Live Theater in Soho. Welcome to this edition of WCBS Author Talks. I'm Steve Scott. Our guest today is CBS News Justice and Homeland Security correspondent Jeff Pegues, who has a new book out just today called Black and Blue, Inside the Divide Between Police and Black America. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Steve. You have extensive experience covering police and community relations. Why did you write this book? Why this topic at this time? You know, I wanted to get the facts out there. So often I'd be watching this debate, debate unfolding uh, on television, and in some cases there were misstatements of the facts or uh, information that was, putting out, that was being put out there that just wasn't accurate. And so I felt because of my upbringing and because of my experience covering law enforcement over the last 25 years that I could present this divide equally in a book. Put all the information there. You have uh, people in the black community talking about what the root of the problem is. Police officers talking about how they really feel because oftentimes police officers go to these community meetings but they're in their uniform so they can't really tell people how they feel. So I was able to, to go into these communities, talk to police officers, and get an assessment of how they feel on both sides. And, and that's what I am, am most proud of, is that there is blunt talk in this book. And I think if this is a debate that is going to move forward in a positive way, that's what you need. It's like therapy, right? You have to admit and acknowledge that there's a problem before you move ahead to fix the problem. Part of the title is Inside the Divide. So how wide is that divide? Well, there's still a problem here, and we're seeing it in the headlines. Uh, these stories, uh, very emotional, sad stories, continue to pop up. Um, and so there is still a divide. However, progress is being made from the research that I've seen uh, in that police departments are moving forward with reforms. People in the communities are working with police departments to enact these reforms, transparency, more accountability for police officers, body cameras, right? So there is an effort to reform increased training. So there is still this divide, and it's going to take some time for that rift to be healed. But there are steps being taken at the local level in a positive way in cities across the country in the wake of Ferguson, Baltimore, problems in Chicago, lessons are being learned and changes are being made. I want to come back to body cameras specifically a little bit later in our chat. But you had access to law enforcement at the highest levels, the FBI director, chiefs of police across the country. But for much of your career, you've also gone inside communities. You did both for this book. Were you surprised by the differing outlooks I wasn't because I'd seen it uh, over the years covering uh, law enforcement and the community on a local level as a reporter for a local station in New York for many years. And then I worked in Baltimore as well, Minneapolis and several other cities as I paid my dues along the way to get to CBS News. But I was aware of the divisions. Um, However, this has uh, been inflamed over the last several years because of Ferguson, because of Baltimore, because of what's happening in Chicago. Uh, and that's what I wanted to bring out in the book, 
right? So there are a lot of people on both sides who know that these issues have been there. The question is, how are you going to move forward with it? Are you going to deny that there is a problem here? Because there are some people on, on one side of the debate who feel like, well, what are you talking about? There are no problems with how we're enforcing these laws. What are you talking about? I know that these Justice Department reports say, you know, 44% of people in this neighborhood in Baltimore are being stopped and frisked. They're 11% uh, of the population. They're African-American. But there's no problem with that. What are you talking about? Well, raw numbers can, can be numbing sometimes. But you've uncovered some raw statistics, and you were just touching on some, that I think really uh, paint the picture and help tell your story. Well, yeah, you have to look at the numbers. You know, people want to, some people want to say, well, this isn't happening. But if you look at the numbers, it's pretty clear. And even if you look at what's unfolding on the news every night, it's pretty clear that there is a problem here. So to deny it would be, that's not factually correct. Uh, and, and that's why I thought it was important to do black and blue, because I wanted to get into this divide, talk to the people at the, on the front lines of it, figure out what the problem is, and then see how it's moving forward. And there are stories in the book about people who are taking steps to make change, like Terrence Cunningham, who was the former president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police, who went out on a limb last fall and delivered this speech where he apologized on behalf of law enforcement for being the face of oppression in some communities. What he was saying, essentially, is that the police were enforcing laws throughout the history of this country that were discriminatory. For example, uh, Birmingham in the 60s, right? And so these are the images that are in the minds of African Americans when they deal with police even to this day. And that's something that Terrence Cunningham was acknowledging. And he did it going out on a limb to spark a conversation, saying, in other words, that we can't move this forward if we don't acknowledge how we got here. How did that play in the police community? Terrence Cunningham going out and saying, listen, we've made mistakes, and I want to stand here and say I am sorry for that. How did that play among police? Well, there were a lot of police officers, rank and file, who didn't like it. And I get that. You know, they, they were saying, well, I wasn't alive in the 60s. That's not my issue. Why are you apologizing? I don't need to apologize for that. So he did hear a lot of that. He got some hate mail. But he also got a lot of support. Because what it showed was this willingness to acknowledge, well, here's why we are where we are. Let's talk about it. How do we move forward? So he's gotten a lot of support. And I think so you, you talk about a, a profile in courage. If you, if you look at what he did, it was an important moment for this debate, which is moving forward. As I said, it's, things are improving, but still there is a long way to go. Well, because uh, I've heard you uh, discuss people saying in the communities that they're treated like livestock. And then you have cops who say, listen, we're police officers. We're not babysitters. It's not our job to raise and, and rear your children. Well, that's a pretty big divide right there. Well, it is. But again, if you look at the issue, you can understand why police officers feel that way. We as a nation have 
drop them into communities, and they're doing jobs that they weren't signing up to do, in part because there are social structures around them that have not been addressed, right? So they're writing tickets, raising revenue for cities. Why? Because, you know, based on what I found in my research and talking to people, there are politicians who don't want to raise taxes, but these cities need revenue. So what do they do? They lean on police departments to write more tickets. Ferguson. That's what happened in Ferguson. What happens when you do that? Well, you create this divide with the community who feels uh, imposed on because you're constantly, these small infractions, police are being asked to write more tickets, uh, collect revenue essentially from people in the community who can't afford it. They cannot afford it. And this is something that crosses cultural divides. It's about, you know, it's a... It's an economic issue for whites and blacks in parts of this country where tickets are being written. People can't afford to pay the ticket. They have to go to jail because they'd rather take some time in jail than have to pay the ticket. They lose their job, right? So they lose the job. The family suffers. So there's this cycle that that kind of law enforcement creates. And so police are saying, listen, we can't raise your kids. We can't cure your psychosis. And, and this is in the book. Uh, they're being asked not to, in, you know, not to fight crime, but to cure social ills. So that is something that we talk about in the book. And people on the community side who say, listen, if, if there was more opportunity, if there was more hope in some of these communities, this situation would change. You know, there are good cops, bad cops, just like there are good teachers, bad teachers, good journalists, bad journalists. But when something goes wrong in law enforcement and you have a dirty cop, it seems in some communities to just propagate the theory that all cops are dirty cops. Yes, that's been happening. Another reason why I wanted to write black and blue is that I felt, you know, that's just not fair. I wanted to get the facts out. Um, Was it an easy thing to do to write a book like this, tackling such a controversial issue? No. But I did not think it was fair to present or paint all police officers with that same brush. Most police officers, 99.9% of them, they don't get into policing to make money. They don't get into policing to to get rich. They get into policing because they want to help people. So to, to paint them with that brush is not fair. However, there are bad apples. The question is, what are these police departments going to do to take those bad apples away from the bunch and present a picture of accountability, of professionalism, and of treating people in these neighborhoods with dignity and showing them respect? It works both ways. You know, if if people, if the police officers show people in the community respect, that respect will be returned. It it works both ways. And that's what, what a lot of the people that I spoke with on both sides were saying. You know, every now and then we'll, we'll see a clip on TV of a cop throwing a football around uh, with kids out in the community or uh, cops delivering groceries to, to people who are, who are homebound. Who, well, what who kind of help. feeling do you get when you see something like that? Well, I I get a good feeling when I see that. But I wonder sometimes why it seems we see that a lot less than we we see the other side of the coin. Yes. 
Um, and maybe that's because those images aren't making it uh, on the news channels enough. But steps like that, they matter. Those images matter. There is a little kid in, uh, in a black community somewhere in this country who sees that and sees someone in uniform doing something that they can identify with. That matters. Does it have the same effect on the negative side when they're watching TV and they see a person of color being shoved down on the ground and their hands pulled behind their back and, and, and cuffed? Yes. Yes. If you look throughout history, and that's where a lot of this comes from. You know, I, um, I grew up uh, and I was raised by parents who grew up in Birmingham and Montgomery, Alabama in the 60s. They were heavily involved in the civil rights movement. They were protesters. They were aware of the hoses and the batons and the colored only fountains. Uh, and so that's how I was raised. But because of, you know, my parents had success in business. I grew up uh, in Westport, Connecticut for the most part, which is a wealthy, predominantly white community. And no matter where you are, you as a black American, you are still reminded of that. And every time there's a Ferguson or there's a Baltimore, what African-Americans will tell you is that they are reminded of the 60s and Bull Connor. Those images, it's like a flashback. So you don't get away from that. You know, every time there is a police shooting that affects a black family, you're reminded of that. And yeah, those images have an impact, especially when it comes to dealing with that police officer that you may not know, but he's or she is in that uniform, it's like anything else. If you see a negative image, image enough, that's what's in your mind. We talk about the 1960s. I mean, how many times have we flashed back to 1991 and Rodney King and, exactly. and seen that video over and, and over again? Um, after a while, if you're a viewer of that, it must get ingrained in your head that for a person of color, this is what it's like with the police. Well, it's, and it's not just a, a person of color. If you look at police and how this is affecting them, they are reluctant in some cases to, to do their jobs for fear that they will be painted as racist. And it's not just happening in inner cities. This is happening in places like Westport, Connecticut, where there are concerns about pulling people of color over because they are concerned that uh, they could be accused of profiling. So those images not only affect people in the black community, but also people on the law enforcement side, and it makes it harder to recruit. There are departments across this country who cannot fill their ranks because, you know, they're finding it hard to convince people, hey, this is a career path for you. What are you talking about? Look at the images on TV. Why would I want to subject myself to that type of Monday morning quarterbacking or that type of scrutiny? Uh, and so this is the type of uh, things that I was told about in my interviews with uh, police officials, rank and file police officers, and with uh, the head of the unions. They, they are concerned about these images, too. I wonder about in communities where the police chief is black or the uh, majority of officers uh, are black. Does that make a difference? Does that change the dynamic as, as you've done your research? Have you been able to extrapolate anything from that? Well, it helps. Uh, but it is, is not, it's not the only solution. You know, there have 
been black police chiefs in majority black cities that have not done so well. Uh, so it's less about the, the color of the police chief or the police officer uh, based on what, what I have learned and more just about the policies that are in place. You know, if you're constantly harassing someone who there has not broken any laws, there is no probable cause to do that, what do you expect to happen? You know, you increase that divide. And that's what uh, I think research has shown with stop and frisk type tactics, zero tolerance policies. Um, and what New York has shown, obviously, is that you don't really have to do that to drive crime numbers down. Because what has happened over the years is that these zero tolerance policies have put the brunt of the pressure uh, on police officers to target uh, certain neighborhoods. And what that has done has broken down the level of trust uh, and respect between community and police. Um, And so, you know, these are issues that that come out in the book and that are important because, you know, we're talking about lives on both sides here. Lives on both right. sides. Earlier mentioned body cameras on police. It's a growing phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, will that help? Oh, yeah. Transparency. I think if anything, uh, police chiefs across the country have, have learned that transparency is important. Whenever there's a shooting like this, you have to come out and and talk about the facts surrounding the shooting. And, you, you know, it's complicated because you have to do it in such a way that you don't compromise the investigation. But what we've found over the last several years is that initially there was, you know, rank-and-file police officers were against these body cameras because what, what it was Big Brother looking over your shoulder, right? Who really wants that? But what has happened is, according to union officials that I've spoken with, they're welcoming these cameras now. Why? Because it's the kind of device that clears the good cops. The good cops have a backup camera uh, in place, essentially, that if there is any sort of uh, dispute about how they did their jobs, you always have that camera to go back to. Uh, and so we're seeing police departments across the country uh, bring in these body cameras. And what they're finding is that it is a positive addition to the way they do their jobs. Now, there are other issues around that. For example, how long do you store the data? And making sure that the officers turn on the cameras when they respond to a call. Uh, and so there's this whole infrastructure developing around these cameras. But All in all, based on what I've done for CBS News, based on what I've done in this book, Black and Blue, most of the rank-and-file cops, from what I hear, are now welcoming these cameras because they're helping them. We're just about out of time, but I want to ask you about the mindset that you find in the communities. The last couple years, we've had, it seems like, an upswing in ambush attacks against cops. Here in New York, of course, we remember officers uh, Ramos and Lou. Uh, and it's happened in other cities as well. As you have gone in the communities, are you finding a sentiment of you kill one of ours, we'll kill one of yours? Well, no one that I have spoken with will uh, acknowledge that uh, to me. What they will say, though, is that uh, take, for example, Terrence Cunningham uh, and look back on that week last July. You had the Dallas shooting, you had Philando Castile, and you had Alton Sterling. What a week. 
that was an incredible week. And in this book, I talk about the meetings in the White House between top police officials and President Obama because there were police chiefs who were in the White House who were concerned about the rhetoric because there was this sentiment there of, uh, of the rhetoric maybe going too far. Uh, and so there was, there was this, this plan or this, this discussion about, well, how do we stop this? And that's where the apology came from. You know, it was, and this is a, a, a process that I talked about in the book, which when I heard it for the first time and what was being said in the White House and, and how these police officials were interacting with President Obama and how this idea of this apology came forward and how police chiefs were pushing President Obama to, to watch what he was saying when he was going to some of these funerals and he was talking about this issue. They were concerned about the rhetoric. There were people on both sides who were concerned about the rhetoric. Uh, and so that matters too in this debate, uh, making sure that there's not someone out there who may be unstable, like the guy in Dallas, who reacts to this type of very divisive rhetoric. And that's another reason why I th wanted to do this, is to, to get the message out on both sides that here's what's at stake here. You may not understand where they're coming from, but here's what they're thinking. You might not understand where they're coming from, but here's what they're thinking. And here's why you actually have something in common. There's fear on both sides, right? So how do you bridge that gap? It's by talking, breaking down the barriers, acknowledging mistakes on both sides, and moving forward. It's like therapy. The book is called Black and Blue, Inside the Divide Between the Police and Black America. It's available now through Amazon or wherever you buy books. Uh, Jeff Pegues, we'll see you on the CBS Evening News. We'll hear you on the radio. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks, we appreciate Steve. it. And thank you for joining us for this edition of WCBS Author Talks. I'm Steve Scott.